not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. For nine years now, I've been telling my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. Well, before we meet today's guest, I have a very big announcement to share with you. I am so excited and a little scared. I am releasing another book. It's called The Ember Ever There, and it is a book of poetry that I've written about recovery, rediscovery, grief, loss, dysfunction, (laughs) all the stuff. Um... It is going to be released in mid-June, but you're the first to hear about it here. And if you keep an eye on my Instagram, which is Jean McCarthy Writes, or the Facebook pages for Unpickled or The Bubble Hour, you will soon see a reveal of the cover and pre-order information and more about it there. So super excited and really, really hope that you all love this book because it has been a very special thing for me to put together and I'm really sharing from the heart my own personal story of my own personal journey in this one. So that's my big news. (laughs) Let's meet today's guest. We are talking today with Jill from Florida and she talks about her experience with addiction and recovery as being a revelation in discovering something called HSP, the highly sensitive person. When Jill learned about this, everything started to make sense for her. Let's meet Jill and hear her story. Hi, Jill. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's nice to hear your voice. You have a voice that is very soothing. You could do, you could do um, meditation <laughs> audio, I think. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I'm sure like my boys when they were teenagers <laughs> didn't think that about my voice too much, but I appreciate that. I feel like we're in different worlds, but in many ways, you and I have a lot in common. And um, I mean, we're we're similar age. We have similar families. We have we have a lot in common, mm-hmm. and um, so it's interesting how we can be so far apart, have so much in common, and really, I guess that's what the bubble hour is all about: is we listen to these stories and we hear ourselves in it in different ways. So, let's turn our attention to you, Jill. Will you tell us about yourself and tell us your story? Sure. Thanks, Jean. Um, I owe so much to the Bubble Hour, and I want to thank you and Ellie, Amanda, Catherine, and Lisa. They were the voices that I clung to in my early days. Listening to you all gave me so much hope and confidence, and it felt good to know I was not alone. So um, it's a pleasure to give back, and I hope my story can help someone. I'm the youngest of four, and there's a big age gap. I'm around 10 years younger than the oldest two and then six years younger than my nearest brother. And the age gap was a big deal when I was a child because the oldest were almost like my parents at times. 
when I was young and they were becoming teenagers, there was lots of arguments and fighting in the household, mostly among the teenagers, but also with my parents about them taking the cars and I think just normal teenage stuff. But I'm an HSP and that's a highly sensitive person. There's a book by Elaine Ahrens called The Highly Sensitive Person. I discovered it not too far into my sobriety journey and it felt like a big puzzle came together when I learned that there was such a thing. The definition of a highly sensitive person is someone who experiences acute physical, mental, or emotional responses to stimuli. Highly sensitive people know from long experience that they feel things far more strongly than others do. So probably what was going on in my house was normal teenage fighting and family arguing, but from my young and sensitive perch, it was loud, dark, scary, and out of control. I cried a lot. I begged the teenagers and my parents to stop arguing and carrying on with disagreements. I was told I was too sensitive and needed to not worry so much. Well, that's a bit like telling someone not to have brown eyes. My sensitivities and my DNA, I couldn't change it, and I still can't. My parents comforted me as best they could, but to my mind, a lot of things were chaotic and overwhelming. As I said, I was always being told I was too sensitive, and my siblings were always calling me a crybaby. I cried when I saw a dead bird or animal. I cried when I saw injustices. I cried when I was scolded by teachers or adults. I was super sensitive to the news on TV. Every story about murder or rape felt like it was in my backyard. I cried when I asked my mom to turn off the news. The world happening seemed overwhelming and out of control to me. Luckily, I had books, nature, art, and a rich internal fantasy world. I spent a lot of time in my head somewhere else. When I was eight, my brother, who was 14 at the time, started drinking with an older neighbor kid. My parents found out, and there was a lot of yelling and threats, but my brother continued to drink off and on on the weekends. When he was 16 and in high school, his drinking really took off. He was on the football team, and there were parties every weekend. From the get-go, he seemed to drink alcoholically, always coming home drunk. His drinking continued through the years. He would move out for a while, then return home. We later found out he was abusing anabolic steroids, which contributed to his volatile behavior. It was hell because I wasn't in charge and there was nothing I could do about it. My parents and he were arguing all the time. My older siblings were away at college. I just hated it at home. I even asked my sister if I could live with her at college and finish high school there. My parents would try tough love. My brother would say he wouldn't drink anymore, and of course he would. He was really difficult to be around, and he was constantly bullying me. He tried outpatient treatment a few times, but he conned the counselors into believing he didn't have a problem. Throughout this time, I used alcohol as an escape. I was in high school, so my friends and I didn't get alcohol that often, but when we did, I used it to numb. He finally got his life in a bit of order and moved to another state. My parents weren't big drinkers. They would have get-togethers with friends or relatives and have a few drinks, but I never saw either of them drunk. The parties at our house made alcohol seem fun and exotic. The bottles were all lined up on the kitchen counter. There was perfume, music, and laughter. Whatever party or holiday gathering we went to, I never thought twice about my parents drinking or not getting us home safely. I associated drinking with having a fun adult time. Drinking held an allure. I couldn't wait to become an adult to have a grown-up good time. 
My parents started to have a cocktail before dinner on the weekends, probably when I was around 20 years old. I joined them for a drink to mark the end of the day and the easy slide into evening. Then they started having a drink or two every night at six, but it never got out of hand. Sometimes my friends and I would join them for happy hour. It was innocent and fun. Because my brother drank alcoholically from the get-go, I assumed one was either an alcoholic or one was not an alcoholic. I didn't know it's a progressive disease and one become, be, can become addicted over time. I just remember thinking, I'm never going to drink like my brother. The first time I drank, I was around 12 or 13. I was with some older kids and I got sick. It wasn't a good time. I don't remember the next time I drank, but around 15 or 16, I was drinking fairly regularly with friends on the weekend. We would go to keggers and parties with kids from high school. It was fairly innocent with us. Nobody got really drunk, and we would take turns being designated drivers. Probably starting around high school, I started having what I know now was anxiety. At the time, I didn't know what I was feeling and definitely couldn't articulate it. I felt worried a lot and frequently had this sense of uneasiness. It's probably no coincidence that that's around the time, you know, I really started drinking also. I loved drinking because after one or two, I thought, this is probably how most people feel all the time. The sense of feeling relaxed and finally not in fight or flight mode. In college, I drank like the people I hung out with, which was frequently I worked as a waitress at night, and after work, we would usually go out and have a few drinks to wind down after our hectic shifts. Everyone in the restaurant where I worked drank and partied hard. My friends and I were pretty responsible about going out. We walked or took taxis. We went as a group and came home as a group. We looked after one another and didn't let anyone get separated from us. We had lots of really fun times together. We went to dance parties or out to bars. We never had to carry anyone home. But I frequently woke up feeling the sense of darkness and doom. Of course, there was usually some degree of hangover involved, but also this black hole too. And I often wondered if others felt the same way. After college, I got married and my husband joined the military. We moved away and started having kids. We lived in some beautiful places and a few not so beautiful places. Drinking for me was a way to calm myself and basically numb my feelings, feelings that always seemed overwhelming. Drinking was also marking the end of the day and winding down. And drinking felt like freedom, too. I'd pour a few glasses of wine and try to get that feeling I used to have before marriage, kids, and responsibility took over. Drinking represented the time before responsibilities. And wine was always my friend. We'd move to a new place where, once again, I'd have to start over getting established and making new friends. And wine was my go-to when I was lonely. I usually stayed behind with the kids and dogs and got the house packed up and ready to move to our new place, or the kids, dogs, and I would go ahead and get the new place established while my husband was finishing up his old job. I always did the moves alone, and I always relied on wine to ease the stress of the transitions. My drinking changed after 9-11. We were living a few miles from a base that had a fighter jets. When 9-11 happened, the base went on lockdown. Parents were going to the schools to pick up their kids. Some military communities were all, um, we all know what's going to happen. There's going to be war and deployments. When I went to pick up my kids after school, parents are crying. The principal has teacher, or tears in his eyes. The teachers are crying. and We are all numb. The base started ramping up operations, so I had fighter jets screaming over my house day and night. It was constant. 
Not long after 9-11, my husband came home from work saying he was being deployed for six months and he was leaving in the morning. It was such a gut punch. You know all along that, you know, if your spouse or you are in the military, you know that there'll be deployment, but the notices are usually weeks and months in advance, but this was war and we just had to deal with it. I didn't care for the area we lived in. I felt it was racist and backward and I wasn't comfortable there. So that was like another <clears throat> kind of bad thing about the air, about the time in my life. And my drinking changed then from something I chose to do to something I had to do or needed to do every night. My anxiety was through the roof. Luckily, we were only there for 10 months total and then on to our next adventure. I loved where we moved and I immediately met some wonderful friends, a few of whom liked wine as much as me. Something felt off with my drinking. Um, I can I can look back at 9-11 and see that um, my drinking changed, you know, now from this from this long. But at the time I didn't really I didn't really know it. But something did feel off with my drinking and I felt like I looked forward to it at the end of the day too much. But my friends drank like I did, and actually sometimes more. So I thought, if they are okay, then so am I. It didn't occur to me to stop drinking. Only people who had dire consequences and couldn't handle alcohol quit drinking. People like my brother had to quit drinking. He had three DUIs and caused constant chaos with his drinking. People like me, who would quietly sip wine on their sofa, didn't need to quit drinking. I was moderating fairly well most of the time. There were so many boxes I couldn't check off, like I didn't drink during the day. No one had spoken to me about my alcohol consumption, that it was easy to convince myself I didn't have a problem. We moved a few more times, and moderating was becoming hit or miss. My family didn't know I had a problem because I was able to hide it from them. They knew I drank wine every night. They just didn't know how much. Around 2010, I found... Alan Carr's book. It was The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. I read it and quit for six weeks or so. The thing is that book didn't give any tools for staying quit or for what to do when adversities rose. And that's what happened to me. We had a house fire and I went back to my only way of coping I had ever known. And then um, I just kept on. I would stop for a month and start again, maybe stop for a couple of weeks, start again. And I did that for four more years. We moved to this new city where I currently live in 2012. I made a point of not having drinks with any new friends or going to parties or bars with anyone. I knew I wanted to quit drinking and I didn't want to establish any habits or patterns that would be hard to break and make it harder to quit drinking. A few years earlier, I had gone back to school and had gotten a degree in health and wellness promotion. I was working at a women's health club. I was coaching women in fitness and nutrition, and I felt like such a phony because I was drinking a bottle of wine every night while telling my clients to limit their alcohol consumption. Around then, I found the Bubble Hour and some blogs, including Unpickled. I found a few online groups. One was Soberistas. It was helpful to read, post, and interact with people online. I still was quitting for a month or so and then drinking for a few weeks, and it was really getting to be exhausted. Before this, I wasn't really honest with myself about my problem. Hearing and reading the other stories helped me open up to myself, but I was really hard on myself. I was just like, how the F did you let this happen? 
what is wrong with you? I was pissed at myself. I knew many people who drank like me and they didn't become addicted. Why me? So then I set about trying to figure out how to get myself out of this mess I'd gotten myself into. I was reading every book and article I could get a hold of about alcohol and how to quit. It was quite confusing because I'd always been able to figure things out. I could always think myself out of any situation or solve problems that came up in my life. I was trying to think my way out of addiction, thinking if I got my PhD and reading books about alcohol, then suddenly I would be released. But that was not the case, as we all know. Quitting drinking was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. I wish there was a formula, but you just have to quit. I was always waiting to hear what the secret sauce is, you know but it's just not drinking and then doing the same thing the next day and the day after that. I finally quit in September of 2014. On my third day of sobriety, I got laid off from my job, which turned out to be such a blessing. I could devote a good portion of my time to focusing on not drinking. I made dinner in the morning because cooking at around six was when I would pour wine, so I changed my patterns. I walked my dog from 5 to 7 in the evenings to get out of the house. I listened to the bubble hour while I walked. I had a lot of tasty beverages on hand. I ate whatever sweets I wanted to. I played a lot of words with friends. I went online and interacted with my groups. I made a lot of art. I read tons of books about alcohol and quitting. I'm especially interested in the science and what it does to your brain. I always want to know why it's bad for me so I can concentrate on that. A big part of my success, I think, was having a gratitude journal, excuse me, writing down at least five things every day that I was grateful for, no matter how small, helped me immensely. Focusing on all the things that sober brought into my life and not focusing on what I couldn't do, like drink, was a big key for me. Um, One of my favorite books is Drink by Ann Dossett Johnston. She weaves in her story with some hard facts about alcohol, including the marketing and advertising of alcohol to women. Reading her book um, really made me not want to be a pawn in the alcohol marketer's, you know, big scheme of things. Um, I I have loved every minute of my recovery journey. I'm always trying new tools and taking care of myself in different ways. I have my old standbys of self-care I always use, but I like to try new things too. I'm a seeker. I think the hardest part of recovery has been facing my feelings. It's like, whoa, they were loud and powerful at first. But, you know, it's, it's been fun to ride the waves. I have a great therapist who asks me hard questions and makes me look at myself like I never had before. And that's been interesting. When I was drinking, I think I thought of taking care of myself is selfish. I was always busy earning my keep, volunteering in the schools, working on our house to flip, buying our next house to flip, and recovery has made me slow down. There's nothing to run from. My feelings are manageable. When I started my recovery journey, that's when I found out about this thing called the highly sensitive person. All these years, I looked at my sensitivity as a flaw. I saw it as a weakness But after learning about it, I realized it's actually a superpower. I think because I'm sensitive, I got into recovery sooner before any bad consequences. I think um, just the way I'm wired made the effects of alcohol more negative, like the darkness I would feel the morning after. And that effect made me seek recovery sooner rather than later. 
Of course, when you numb the bad, like I was doing, you numb the good too. And now it feels kind of like I'm living in technicolor. I laugh harder. I enjoy things more. And actually, I thought my life was pretty good before. Um, But I realize now that there was a little bit of grayness because of alcohol. Um, I enjoy the mental clarity that sobriety brings. It's not like I have everything figured out, but life is so much easier. And like Eugene, I drank in secret and I quit in secret. This last time, quitting felt different. It felt like I was going to make it. I wasn't pining away for wine so much. Don't get me wrong, I wanted it every night, but the determination to be free was stronger than that fleeting feeling wine would give me. I didn't tell anyone I quit until I had about 30 days under my belt. I wasn't sure I could do it, so I didn't want to make any big announcements. My husband and kids were surprised I had a problem, and so were a lot of people in my life. It's funny, there were people who tried to convince me I didn't have a problem. You know, they would say things like, um, but, you know, you could go back to drinking anytime, right? I mean, it's like no problem for you, right? You could do that. And I, I think that they probably did to ask me those questions so that, you know, they were looking at their own, you know, I was probably a reflection of their own drinking. But um, also, I think that, you know, the media, the way they portray addiction, um, it, they, it doesn't really portray addiction like um, people like me, like as far as like I wasn't hiding wine in my purse or I didn't have dire consequences. Um, so I think, you know, when we talk about like the sober curious movement and things like that, I think it's good because um, it, it really shows the spectrum of alcohol use disorder. But, um, you know, with all the money I've saved by not drinking, I use it towards trips and meetups with my fellow sisters in recovery. I love She Recovers and their retreats, and um, I also use the money to invest in me and my health. I bought a new paddleboard, I bought a new bike, and um, I'm, I'm kind of doing good, good with it. But, um, Jean, that's my story, and I'm, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you for sharing, Jill. I enjoyed that. I love just picturing you on your paddleboard or on your bike and looking after yourself. Uh, I did write down some questions as you were talking. I want to start by asking you a little bit about being a highly sensitive person and understanding that. Um, So you, you know, you were drinking to kind of numb, which a lot of us can understand that. How do you filter out all the all the input now if without your your numbing mechanism? Do you have some go-to strategies or do you do you um, embrace being more sensitive? What's what's yeah, your perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um well, now that I'm not drinking, I don't really have anxiety very much you know, too. So that was like a big thing. Um, but yeah, like one of the, not long after I quit drinking, my husband likes to go to, um, national hockey games. So we went to a hockey game and I felt like I was in the middle of a pinball machine, like the lights (laughs) and the, um, music and the, the noise. I was just, I, 
I was overwhelmed, but I, I was grounded, you know, cause like, I was like, okay, I know, I, I knew that, um, okay, this is happening, you know, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to focus on this. And I was just like, kind of looking around at all the people that were drinking around me and thinking, oh, that's why they numb, you know, that's why they're drinking too. Maybe this is kind of loud for them. But I did make a mental note, like next time I go to a hockey game, bring some earplugs and maybe sunglasses or something, because it really, um, the it was just, it was overwhelming. And like now what I, I do, like if I'm somewhere, let's say we're, oh, it's, really people-y, you know, we're talking to a lot of people and things like that. Being just, I sometimes just have to go outside. That makes me feel better. I have to take breaks. I don't schedule much as much as I used to. Um, I used to, you know, like I say, I was busy. I was, you know, see, I don't have a problem. Look, I'm doing this. I'm volunteering there. I'm the art teacher in this room. I'm doing this. And um, now I just... I, I say no a lot too. That's like a big thing. Boundaries and saying no and um, not overscheduling. That's, that's a huge thing for me. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because in having spent some time together, I know you to be very warm and you like people and you're really interested in people. So it's not as if you don't like being around people. It's just there's sort of a, is there a level yes. of, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a line? Vibration? There is, no, it's, you know what, Jean, it's, um, really, I love being with women in recovery or people in recovery because there's no like small talk. There's just, you just like get down to the nitty gritty. You just like, you know, you just like sit down and you're like, so how's your marriage? You know, <laughs> like, um, back and forth. And, um, I'm kind of talking about when I'm in kind of new groups around new people and there's kind of like that kind of like new parties and there's kind of like that little small talk and things like that, that I just find excruciating. But yeah, I love, um, hanging out with my recovery sisters and one-on-one and small groups and, you know, even larger groups. Um, I know that like when we were in LA, when she recovers was in LA, I had to spend some time in my room alone a little bit. You know, I, I had to, I had to be alone a little bit and I had to go outside and make, I just did a lot of walks and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I felt, I felt the same. I, I find big groups. Sometimes I don't know where to start. I mean, I can stand in front of a thousand people. Give me a microphone and a podium. I know where to go. I have my speech in front of me. I know what I'm supposed to say. But put me in a room with 30 people that I kind of know, and I don't know where to start. <laughs> I'll st- I might start visiting with someone, but then, oh, do I have to make eye contact with everybody else that goes by that I know? Or- well, you can, just- you can start like I do and say, hey, please back up a little bit. <laughs> Do you know, I did see a friend at the grocery store yesterday, and I was so awkward when I saw her that I had to message her afterwards and say, I'm not sure what I actually said, but here's what I meant to say. <laughs> I think I might have been a little bit rude. You know, here, that's the thing. It's like um, all those times when I was drinking, I thought I just said something stupid or awkward because I was drinking, but 
now it's just me, you know, now that I'm not drinking, I'm like that awkward stuff that comes out all the time. That's normal. So how do you feel about that? Do you beat yourself up about that? Or do you just say, well, that's me? Yeah, that's just me. And you know what? People are awkward. Come on, let's face it, right? You know, most people aren't just Joe Cool. Most people have a little bit of, um, you know, when you really kind of look at people, you know, I'm a big observer of people. I love to kind of sit back and watch people. And um, they're kind of... I was kind of thinking about themselves. How am I presenting myself? What? Uh, how do I sound? You know, they're probably not even even aware that I'm awkward, or you know, they're mostly worried yeah. about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, you have a very calm demeanor and an elegant presence, and I don't know if you feel that way. I know I often think I feel very different than how I'm perceived. Um, I think someone told me once I was elegant and I thought, wow, that is interesting. You are. <laughs> I is, would say so. I don't see myself as that at all. I see myself as gangly and, you know, because I'm hypercritical. I mean, those, those old voices die hard, but when you start to entertain the idea of like you say, oh, well, that's interesting. If people do think about us at all, they're only noticing, you know, how we, how, how they perceive us and they can't tell how hard we are on ourselves. But I love, by the way, that you said Joe Cool there a few minutes ago. <laughs> I haven't heard that for so long. I love that. I think, That's such a 70s reference. Um, yes, that is. I think too that um, I like to laugh. And so I think kind of like my awkwardness is like when I say something that I think is like really funny and like somebody doesn't get it or because I have a dry sense of humor too. Cause like I'll say something and somebody will look at me and then I kind of smile and then, you know, they're like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. That was a joke. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's funny. But, um, I told, <laughs> funny. I totally, I'm not laughing, but it's funny. <laughs> I totally see you as elegant, but you are also hilarious. And I don't think, um, your listeners know that because you so graciously give the the floor to your guests, but you are so funny. So um, I've had a lot of laughs with you, Jean. Oh, thank you for saying yeah, that. I appreciate you you saying that because I think we do share a sense of humor. I think we both have quite a dry <laughs> sense of humor and we can laugh at ourselves. So <laughs> um, you mentioned being in therapy. Do you go regularly? Have you been for a long time or are you like me go four times and talk about it for the rest of your life? <laughs> no, I um, first I had... Um, a couple, a few months actually before my, before I got sober, both of my parents died. So I started, um, when I quit drinking, I found, I was like, you know what, I got a lot to work through. You know, I have some grief here. So, um, and I, you know, I felt like I needed some help with it. So I, um, found a therapist and I went to her for a couple months and, um, you know, it was like, eh, Eh, it's, you know, I just didn't find it that helpful. And then last year, about a year ago now, I had like something kind of big happen in my business, um, our, our family business, where an employee ended up stealing from us. And I was very, um, it shook me to my core. I just felt, um, I, I, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating. And it wasn't even, of course, I mean, the money, of course, it was a big thing, but it was the betrayal. And so, um, 
uh, since I wasn't sleeping and eating, I was like, I, I need some help with this. So I found a therapist and I have, and we talked, we talked about that for a couple of weeks and then that went away. And, um, you know, she just saw some things in me. I think that I, I didn't know about myself. You know, we talked about feelings and things like that because I numbed my feelings for so long. And I see her fairly regularly, you know, maybe twice a month. For a while, it was once a week, and now maybe twice a month. And um, now, like phone calls, if we, if you know, if something comes up, or I want to, I want to bounce something off of her. But she's been really helpful. Just a really, um, just kind of, she's almost like a mom to me. Um, and it kind of feels good to have somebody that kind of cares about you in that way, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the way she mm-hmm. talks to me is kind of motherly and it kind of feels good. So that's probably maybe why I'm going to, but, um, no, she's been, she's been super helpful. I, Have you had any big epiphanies or is there anything, you know, particular that you're working on, you know, that's like a long project, like for me, codependency is so hardwired into me. And by that, I mean, just being other focused, forgetting that it matters what I think. I'm just so driven by what other people think. Have you had any things like that, that you've realizations about yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, codependency is a big thing. Um, but mostly, um, it's not knowing my feelings. Like I'll tell her something and she'll go, well, how did that make you feel? And I'm like, huh, how did that make me feel? You know, I really have to really have to think about it because I, I numbed my feelings for so long and kind of like in a way of codependency, I don't know if this is probably too, but I was always kind of more worried about others when, you know, the thing in my family was going on when I was a child, I was always trying to be like the peacemaker, trying everybody, you know, to stop arguing and trying to be like the good girl so that my parents didn't have to worry about me and, you know, trying to kind of control the situation and things like that. And I, I, you know, there was nobody like, I wasn't really kind of worried about Jill. I guess I was in a way because I was trying to control things, but I never kind of, um, I mean, my parents did the best they can, they could at the time. Um, they didn't, you know, have that many tools like we do now, but, um, I didn't, I mean, I think all my feelings were then was like big, scary. So now when she asked me about my feelings, it's, it's just kind of a fun thing to explore and kind of, kind of a way to get to know myself and what I want. And I think too, um, a lot of this has been, can be sometimes when people, one person stops drinking and and maybe does therapy can be kind of hard on a marriage. I think for my husband and I, all of a sudden, my husband doesn't drink. He's never really drank. He's, he, he's not that interested in alcohol. He could take her to leave it, mostly leave it. And, um, so we kind of had a way of interacting and then, you know, I stopped drinking and then I started therapy and started kind of, looking at myself and my boundaries and my codependency and kind of ended up kind of changing the dance that he and I had done for years. And I think it was kind of hard for him. He didn't really know what, you know, who, who he was married to because I kind of changed things around. 
But now since it's been, you know, over five and a half years since I've quit drinking and we're, you know, I talked to him about what I talk about with my therapist and how I need to change some things for me, you know, and our relationship in a good way, in a positive way. I think, um, I, cause I read that a lot in my groups that, you know, um, you know, when you change something in a marriage like yourself, um, it kind of throws the person, on uh, for a loop. So we've kind of been, um, navigating that a little bit, but in a positive way. You know, one thing I, I always remind people is that it took us so long to see ourselves in this new way that we could even embark on sobriety. And especially when we've hidden our struggles from our spouse so convincingly. <laughs> That's true. And then we just, we expect them to just immediately get with the program and accept <laughs> that. <laughs> I know they're like, wait, 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 wait. Now you had a drinking problem. And I didn't know about it. Like, what else are you not telling me? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I, I feel like we really owe it to our families and friends to give them some time to just get used to this new information that this facade we've been holding up as our personality all these years is actually an adaptation that <laughs> that hasn't been all that good for us. And um and that just just it just takes time sometime for for people to to catch up with that. And especially I think it might be especially hard for for men because they're just not as tuned in. Like I feel like women are really, we're so tuned into each other that our bodies align, like our, our cycles will align to eat, to one another. I mean, that's how tuned into each other women can be. Men are operating differently. They're, they're biologically different, they're mentally different, and they're socially different. And so, yeah, I feel like it does take a bit. So do you have you really found too that by changing yourself you've changed your relationship? Yeah, I, I think too. Um, like kind of when I figured out I was an HSP, highly sensitive person, um, and you know I was always a people pleaser. So now, now, like if my husband wants me to do something and I know it's just going to be kind of overwhelming, or you know. I, I want to go or do something, let's say, because I know, you know, he wants me to go or something. But now I have, instead of before, I just go, yeah, okay, you know, now I just sort of have a little more boundaries. Like, you know, how about if I go for half an hour and then, like, I may go outside for a while. Or, like, maybe the hockey game I'll go. How about if I'll go for, like, you know, two periods or, you know, things like that. Or I'll leave and go out for a while and then come back. So, um I'm not so much of a people pleaser and more um, learning that, you know, about myself and my boundaries. And this is really all I can, all I can take. <laughs> and, um, you yeah, know, he's, he's, he's getting with the program. Do you think that makes you more pleasant to be around or makes things go more smoothly? Like, I think I was a real pain in the neck because I was always wound up so tight because I was always feeling uncomfortable and refusing to accept it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. I was vibrating. I was um wound tight and then I was resentful because I was probably going along doing things that I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, uh no, uh uh-uh. uh, you know. And I would I would also resent that no one cared to read my mind. <laughs> 
as I was saying, I'm fine. It's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Isn't that true? I know. <laughs> when are they going to learn? Uh, We're running short on time, but I want to ask you about a couple more things. You mentioned that you started making dinners in the morning to change up the pattern of your day because drinking during the cooking, the supper hour was, was a pattern that needed shifting. I love that. What a great idea. Tell me more things that you do. Well, you know, I'm a big crock pot person. I've always been a big crock pot person. So I loaded up the crock pot in the morning, but I also, um, kind of now too, because I work during the day and I'm tired, like around by six o'clock is sometimes I'll like grill chicken, you know, grill in the morning and I'll cook potatoes in the morning and make salads in the morning just because it's just much, it's, that's just when I have more energy. I'm now a morning person. Um, yeah, I really, it was really hard to be in my kitchen between like five and eight because that's just when I wanted to drink. That was just like my usual mm-hmm. time. And um, I would, for myself, I'd eat at like 4.30 or 5. You know, before my family, I just, I would eat because I needed to have a full stomach so that I wouldn't want to drink. Um, another thing I changed around. And like I walked during the evening. I just spent a lot of time walking and listening to the bubble hour. It was really, um, ah, it just helped me more than you'll know. Ah, oh, that's so neat. That is so neat. You know, the other day I moved a chair into a new corner. There was a chair in the corner that no one ever sat in because it wasn't overly comfortable. And I switched it with another chair from another part of the house. And I have been sitting in that chair for forever now. It's about two weeks ago and I feel like I'm on vacation in that chair. That is so cool. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, years ago, I remember Ellie saying, move the furniture, come in a different door of the house. If you normally sit on the sofa and drink wine while you're watching The Bachelor, then sit in the dining room and do a puzzle and drink tea. Like quit trying to do everything the same without a wine glass in your hand. Shake it all mm-hmm. up. So, uh, you know, I've, I've done that with my physical environment and I, I still do it. I still like that. It's, it's very refreshing and it, it gives you kind of new eyes for your surroundings. But I love that you shook up the pattern of your day and disrupted your body rhythm yeah, that was you know, calling for alcohol. And it's true, too. I, I really couldn't sit on the couch and watch and TV anymore for a long time. Because that's what I would do in the evening. I'd sit on the sofa and watch House Hunters or something mindless. And um, and I really, it was like a couple of years before I could watch HGTV again. Because I associate <laughs> it with drinking. So, yeah. Oh, like I got rid of all those glasses that I used to use. I used to use actually this one. My son made this one big coffee mug for me. And that's what I used to drink my wine in. And um. I couldn't use, I couldn't see it. I couldn't use it for a long time. Yep. Changing things. It's true. Are you sensitive when it comes to language? How do you feel about the word alcoholic and how do you describe your recovery? I don't use that word because, um, I feel like I reach more people and not like I'm trying to convert everybody to be non-drinkers, but if somebody asks my story, And, um, like, let's say I was in a spin class at my gym last year and, um, 
I was, I don't know how it came up. This woman next to me, you know, was telling me that she had not drank for two weeks because she was trying to lose weight. She was going on a trip. And I was like, oh, you know, I haven't drank for, you know, however many years. And I'd never used the word alcoholic. I just said, yep, it just wasn't working for me. And then that, I think that got her more and more interested, um, uh, you know, curious about my story. And I ended up telling her my story and ended up, I'm also a recovery coach. She ended up being one of my clients. And I think that's why, because I didn't use that word. And I don't use that word. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't need that definition. I, and I, I just, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind of volatile as far as um, it can bring up so many different feelings for people. And I understand why certain meetings, they use it or they say it, they don't ever want to, I think it's because they don't want to forget of what, what they are. But for me, yeah, I, I, it just, I don't know. I just, it's never been attractive word for me and that's not who I am, you know, any more than, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's kind of a medical diagnosis and I don't even know, I I think it's supposed to be alcohol use disorder now. I don't think that Mm -hmm. word is even, um, applied in medical terms. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost more of a, a vernacular, way of talking about addiction within certain circles, as you say. And, um, and if it, if it's empowering, that's great. Use it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And, if, and if it's not how you want to define yourself and, and you don't need that in order to have sobriety or, you know, abstinence or whatever, whatever term you want to apply to it, then then, you know, you, you don't need to do that. And, you know, my um, clients that do go to recovery meetings and then when they ask about language, you know, I don't, if they say, I don't feel comfortable saying that, just say that you're in recovery or, you know, that you're grateful you're in recovery or you're grateful that you're not drinking today or you're sober today. You know, it's kind of a negative word, I think, for a lot of people. But recovery mm-hmm. is, it's just a much more positive about positive thing to say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I sometimes say alcohol free emphasis on the free. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Right. Oh man. Freedom. Amen. <laughs> well, it has been so nice to chat with you today. Thank you for your time and thanks for, for being a, a long time listener of the bubble hour and for paying it forward by coming and sharing your story here. I appreciate it. Oh, Jean, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. Now, listeners, if you would like to reach out to Jill and touch base with her, if anything she said resonated with you or you feel called to reach out, you can reach her by emailing me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will make sure that she gets your message. So that's all we have for this week, everyone. I hope you continue to do well. If we have any listeners that are struggling and are thinking about quitting alcohol and feeling like it's really hard to do right now, my heart goes out to you. And uh, I, I know that this is 
a really good time to be sober. And it's not, it's not impossible to stop right now, even under these conditions. There's lots of help available to you. Reach out. I'm happy to help you get connected and help you get on your way. It is so much easier to be alcohol free. Once you get over the hump, it's so much easier than being addicted. I think Jill will agree with me on that. And um, I, I really, really want for everyone who wishes to be free of this to be free and to take their power back. So there's lots of us around that are happy to, happy to help you do that. And right now, happen to have the time to help you do that. So again, the email is thebubblehour at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. I'm thinking of you all. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I didn't, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see the old, I did that. Not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free. Just want to